Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, and my brand new book, Gut Feelings, is for pre-order right now. You can learn all about the books, more information about the podcast, my clinical work, the telehealth center, becoming a patient, and there's lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, we're giving away Freestein books Every month, no matter when you listen to this episode, all you have to do is head on over to Apple Podcast and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. And every month, my team and I will be randomly picking winners. You can do it two different ways. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you can screenshot your Apple Podcast review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole and send me the screenshot of the Apple Podcast review. And every month, my team and I will be going through the messages on Instagram, as well as the Apple Podcast reviews themselves. And then I'll reach out to you, and then I'll ask what book you want me to sign, and then I'll send it out to you. You can pick whatever one you want, the Inflammation Spectrum, Intuitive Fasting, Ketotarian, and Gut Feelings when it's out. And man, you have to check out Gut Feelings. I am, out of all the books, this is my favorite that I've written so far. And I, it's like picking your favorite kid, which is horrible. <laughs> but this is without a doubt, such a topic that's near and dear to me as far as how I see it playing out in my patients' lives and helping them reclaim their health. We're talking about gut and feelings, the physical and the mental, emotional, spiritual, and how the fact that mental health is not separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. We're talking about this sort of mind-body connection and the research around shame and stress and trauma and even intergenerational trauma and the science around that and how it impacts our physical body, but then also conversely how underlying gut problems and nutrient deficiencies and chronic infections and things like mold toxins and chronic Lyme disease and histamine intolerance, how these physiological things impact our thoughts and emotions, impacts things like anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog. So it is such a central part of my work at the telehealth center for patients. And it's also a massive conversation that I'm having on the art of being well here. So check it out at drwillcole.com. You can pre-order it. Now it comes out really soon whenever you're listening to this episode, if it's not already out, depending on when you are listening to it. But the foreword was written by none other than Dr. Nicola Pera, the holistic psychologist on Instagram, but she is a brilliant clinician and she's been on the podcast as well. Anyways, Learn more about all of that at drwillcole.com. And when the book's out, you can also win that for the Apple Podcast Review giveaways. All right, let's get to today's guest. He is such an amazing human being and a brilliant physician. His name is Dr. Shaheen Gadir. Dr. Gadir is a founding partner of Southern California Reproductive Center. Dr. Gadir is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. 
He is currently an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. A native Los Angelino, Dr. Gadir is continuously voted as one of the top doctors in the United States by Los Angeles Magazine's National Poll and Super Doctors of Southern California. He remains one of the most popular, approachable, and well-liked fertility specialists in the country with amazing reviews around the world. I love this guy. He's an amazing human being. This is Dr. Shaheen Gadir's Art of Being Well. Dr. Shaheen Gadir, my friend, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I love talking to you every time we get to talk. And I think we should, let's kick off the conversation with just jumping right in. Let's dive right into infertility. It's a topic that I haven't had the chance yet to dig into the podcast at length. And today's the day. I want people to really be I think people are going to be shocked about what we're facing as a world, specifically as a nation, when it comes to fertility problems. What are you seeing clinically? You know, as a fertility specialist, I've been doing this now for 18 years. And this topic, this issue, this problem for the American society and the world as a whole is not going away. It is going to be growing and sadly growing and growing and growing. As half of the population, females, continue to grow their professional aspirations and do as well, if not better than men in life, they are going to be putting child rearing on the side. And all of our moms and the prior generations were having their, we get married in their early twenties and soon after start building their family. And by 30, early thirties done with their families. Great. Fertility is kind of on a decline after that. They cut their rise in fertility. It is not happening now. Women that are trying to be successful, that are trying to be uh, go through the academic pattern of get, getting to where they have to, and then everything else to succeed in life, it's very difficult to manage both. And postponing child rearing into your late 30s is a natural evolution that causes infertility. Got it. So you're seeing, do you feel like the statistics that that I read about, you know, of declining fertility levels, it's mainly due to people waiting later do you see problems for people that aren't waiting later as a general rule compared to 20, 30 years ago, or is it about even? No, I definitely see that as well. So there's definitely stuff going on in our environment that we cannot pinpoint. So there are definitely environmental issues. There is also obesity, which affects fertility in a very negative way. But we're also seeing issues with poor sperm quality from every single generation. It's getting worse and worse and worse. So the environment is definitely affecting our population and not only, but if we had to pinpoint to say, what is the number one factor that is causing infertility? I'd say it's age related and waiting too long. After that, it's environmental, which affects men and women equally. Men think that they're perfectly fine. Lots of studies have shown that after the age of 40, sperm quality goes down significantly. And so do the increases in abnormalities and the embryos that are created from the side of the sperm. We're seeing more sperm issues every single day, more environmental issues that are causing that we can't pinpoint, but it's just all of the cumulative effects of our environment on the female body that are causing even younger women to have issues. Mm, yeah, I fully agree. So let's talk about both of those things. We touched on them. Let's kind of dig deeper in both the, the age first and then the environmental. We mentioned for men after the age of 40, sperm quality goes down. What is the ultimate range for the highest fertility for both men and women? In your 20s, you know, lots of research has shown that female fertility begins to decline somewhere between 26, 27, 28. For some people, it doesn't decline till 40, but for the majority, the bell-shaped curve, the average female in their late 20s, they start to have the decline in their fertility. For some people, it's very rapid. I have 32-year-olds that come into the office and are having major struggles conceiving, and then we have 43-year-olds that just easily get pregnant, 44-year-olds that easily get pregnant with just a tiny bit of assistance. Right. So it is. you're absolutely right in the sense of this is a societal thing. I mean, we've kind of shifted the way we do life, which comes with amazing advancements and amazing advantages, but we're also 
paying a price if someone's if that's a goal for somebody to have kids waiting later in life can make it difficult. I think about myself and I'm such a outlier in this way. Like I had my kids young and I was extremely like my wife and I were extremely by ourselves in that way. We were in our early 20s. We had our kids, no problem. And it was like us and the Mormons. <laughs> we're not Mormon. But it, like the, it was so different. Like all our friends were like, what the frick are you doing? Like we're living our life. They had their 20s doing what the average American does. And I was this strange young dad. <laughs> Do you see that at all? Like, you know, I, sure I you- see it, but I don't see it that often. Like we have, I have personal friends that just start off really early. You know, my wife was really young. She's about 13 years younger than me. And we got pregnant the first time we tried. I love sharing my own journey. The second time we tried, we got pregnant immediately as well. That ended in a miscarriage. Two years later, our friends that were pregnant about the same time as us, their kids were like beginning to walk and we were still struggling. And that's when we got involved with my clinic. That's when we did six months of artificial inseminations and none of them worked. And we finally did IVF. It was our own personal decision to put two embryos back. And now my twins are 10 years old. And five years later, when we're like, you know what? I think a fourth would make this family complete. We put an embryo back and it did not take. And two months later, my wife was pregnant on her own. So we have a little surprise who's five years old that came on its uh, on her own as well. So we've been through it all from the horrible miscarriage to two years of struggling and then doing a successful IVF cycle that worked out perfectly. And then another surprise out of nowhere. So I see this all the time. So my wife was in her twenties and we still had these issues. And I see it all the time in my own clinic that someone has a baby, but after that, they don't know what's happening. What's the tube got blocked or something really just comes out of nowhere. But we see this all the time that younger women are also struggling these days. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your, if you had to wave a magic wand here, would your opinion be just advocating people to start earlier if that's a goal or? No, I I think we have enough science to not force someone to have a child in their twenties when they are lost. They are not set professionally. They have not begun their academic goals of a career and everything, but fertility preservation, freezing your eggs, freezing your sperm, being smart and proactive is probably the route to recommend. Our success rates have been phenomenal. We have had women up to 44 and even 45 freeze eggs and self, but we've seen it happen. But getting yourself out of your comfort zone and saying, wow, listen, I'm like 29 years old and I'm just about to start my career and this job and this, and I want to give it my all. You need to freeze your eggs so that when you are 35 or when you do meet Mr. Right at 38, you're not limited. You're not limited Mm -hmm. to barely having one child. You're not limited to even struggling at that time. And you have doors open for yourself. And we're getting better at it as a society, but we're still so, so far away from preservation in terms of doing all the right things so you don't have to worry about this in the future. Got it. I love that. So use the best of science that we have access to. So when do you recommend someone to freeze their eggs? Like what are the action steps that the listener in their 20s or early 30s, what should they be doing? So we every year are getting more and more people in their 20s giving us a call, but it's still really rare. It's really hard right now where we are in our society to ask a woman in her 20s to go freeze her eggs. Women in their 20s think they're invincible that they will never have an issue whatsoever. And they're not thinking about that at all. So my recommendation that I've kind of come into grips with, with myself and with society is if you're turning 30 and you have no goals of having a child very soon, I mean, like that year or the next year after that, and you're not looking to have kids, you know, number three and number four in your late 30s, that's a good time to possibly be thinking about it. So 30 is the number that I tell all my OBGYN colleagues, when you have someone coming in the door at 30, do a blood test. There's a blood test called the AMH, anti-malarian hormone, which comes from all the eggs in the body. It's a perfect place to start, but be very careful. You don't wanna be checking the AMH every year. And then once it suddenly has dropped and is looking awful, be like, I gotta quickly go and freeze my eggs now. 
You want to do the egg freezing process when your AMH is great, when your fertility is booming, because that's when you're going to have the best eggs to use. So when you come back at 42 and want to have a child and it doesn't work, we can't say like, oh, wow, we have to now use the 42-year-old eggs. We want to be able to have a great cohort of eggs from when you were fertile, when you had the highest peak of fertility waiting there for you. So you never have to ever worry in the future. Got it. This is really very, very helpful. Typical children's vitamins are basically, let's be honest, they're candy in disguise. They're marketed very well, but they're basically glorified candy. They're filled with teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids or anybody shouldn't really be eating. That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin. While most children's vitamins are filled with all that sugar and can contribute to a variety of different potential health issues, Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet it tastes great and is perfect for picky eaters. Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they actually love. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, vitamin C, zinc, folate, and many, many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and so much more. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and everything else you can imagine. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door so parents have one less thing to worry about. I have two kids, as you most of you know, and my son specifically. I love him, but he is picky and he'll tell you himself. Um, and he loves this. He looks forward to taking Haya because it tastes great. And he knows at his age, he's it's finally clicking that he gets to nourish himself with these amazing things. And uh, he looks forward not only because of the taste, but because he knows it's good for him as well. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to hayahealth.com slash This deal is not available on the regular website, so you have to go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash That's hayahealth.com slash and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Let's kind of shift gears and look at the environmental side of things. And you mentioned this sort of confluence of factors. It's not just one thing, and the science is out in many of the these areas. So TBD, I guess. But I think we all know clinically that there's something going on. It's a combination of things. And those of us in functional medicine are really looking at this as well. So I love the way that you practice and really integrate holistic medicine as well in your clinic, right? I think the last time we talked, we talked about acupuncture as well. So how do you, what are you doing within your clinic, I guess, to start to address some of these environmental other aspects of infertility? So one of the things I do is I've made my initial consultation slot larger than it used to be. It took me a while to realize that, but it's been a good, maybe over five years that we've done that. It takes a while to get everything out of someone about the good and the bad of what they're doing. And sometimes I don't even think that patients are understanding some of the things that are doing that are not good for them. You know, they just don't understand how bad some environmental things are. So we like to get deep and we like to talk a lot about things. And I think people are beginning to understand that they need to be open about everything because there are so many things that they're doing that they don't know how it affects. So it's better to talk about it. And if we are at a level of doubt about anything, we just take it out of your body or take it out of your system or take it out of your routine so that you, we are not looking back and sorry later on. So I think first looking at everything that you're doing in your lifestyle way and trying to promote the healthiest you is really, really important. And I think it has been lost in the American society to try to do things that are the healthiest thing for you. And that's why like obesity is still a major problem. You know, it's, we're tainted. Like I'm in a city like LA, there's not a lot of obesity, but mm -hmm. from an hour away from me, when I do consultations, 50% of my patients are morbidly obese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's true. And what are the statistics there? I think you touched on it at the top of the conversation, but even if someone's not obese, that the insulin resistant spectrum that we're facing as a society, and certainly that is the leading cause of weight loss resistance in the West, but even if someone doesn't have a lot of weight to lose, they wouldn't be classified as overweight or obese, but they you run labs and their A1C is higher than it should be, their insulin resistance scores are higher than it should be, their insulin is higher, glucose is higher, it's trending higher. No matter where they're at on that insulin resistance spectrum, what can that do for someone's fertility? So insulin resistance, which is like the root of polycystic ovary syndrome, which is the root of abnormal ovulations and anovulation, is one of the biggest and most popular issues that we are seeing. I did my thesis in the area of polycystic ovarian syndrome, so I'm rather familiar with it where many people are not. But a minimal weight loss of 10% has been shown to improve insulin resistance and increase fertility. Every single study that has ever been done correlating weight with fertility has shown as your weight goes up, your fertility goes down. So mm -hmm. trying to get someone on a medication like metformin, which helps the insulin work better, helps you to an extent kind of lose weight and get your body under control has been very, very helpful. Promote it and I help people get on it. There are other weight loss medications that have a lot to do with insulin and diabetic control right now that are out there. And many of my patients have had major benefits from it without having to do major surgeries. But I think just starting there and assessing your diet. I remember one day doing a consultation with a patient and we were talking about her diet. And I said, I think you should really take carbs out of your diet right now. And then she said to me, what are carbs? And then I realized very sadly, that we are in trouble in this country because there are a lot of people that don't even understand that drinking five cups of soda, pop, whatever you want to call it, okay, is bad for you. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that we yeah. start to do with for education. You know, when I tell a patient, I don't want you to have any more sodas at all, and I just want you to drink water, you know, that alone has allowed some of my patients to lose so much weight that they are surprised themselves. Mm -hmm. But trying to get control of where you are with your health is probably going to be the number one route of having better fertility. But mm -hmm. we every year I get a handful of people that are the healthiest of all and come into my office at 39, 40 years of age and say, I'm so healthy. I eat so healthy. I do yoga. I do Pilates. I do this and that. The ovarian cycle and your fertility has its mind of its own, and you could be the healthiest person. Now, do I promote to be healthy and also do all those things? Yes, but still also thinking about the age factor as well, because as we said, that's the number one issue that affects fertility. Yeah, very well said. So there's two groups of people we're talking about here, and I, I can definitely, I see this clinically as well, as you have the larger population within the country that I don't get to see that much where you, they are struggling. They aren't eating healthily. They're eating really nutrient deficient foods. They have chronic inflammation. They have metabolic syndrome. They, this is a large part of our society. You mentioned like going out to most of the country and they're not really empowered or educated about how food fuels the body and what food can do to our metabolism and in turn our hormones. And then you mentioned above and beyond that, this sort of they've do, they're doing all the things. And those are typically the people that I see too, where like they are doing all the things, but they're still struggling with their health problems. Whether for me, it's a lot of like fatigue and they're still having digestive problems or hormonal problems and they're eating all the right things or taking all the right supplements or taking the right medications. Or like you're saying, you're seeing them in the realm of they can't, they're having trouble conceiving. And I don't, I'm interested to get your thoughts on the environmental toxin component. And what I'm seeing clinically when I'm measuring labs and looking at things like flame retardants and herbicides and pesticides and things like glyphosate in their body, what's your thought? I know that, that this is maybe slightly controversial, but what's your thought on environmental toxins implicated in the infertility problem that we're facing? I think it's huge. And I think that we don't even realize it. We don't even realize where we are getting toxins from. Going to the supermarket, this is really sad, but my mom is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm. And one of the first people that we saw in the world of neurology that I actually respected said, do you guys eat organic everything at home? 
And I said, not really. I mean, like me here and there. And I realized it's what we put into our body. It's the fuel that gives us everything that we are is from what goes into our mouth. Why would I not give the best that I can? So I know it's challenging and I know it's more costly, but when the 99 cent store now carries a lot of organic items, Mm -hmm. people should have no excuses. When Costco has a lot of organic items, again, you need to make the shift to do what is best. You are nothing without your health. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those pants, the clothes, the electronics, and everything else that you're spending on is nothing if you are not healthy. So I've started my own life lesson there, a very sad, hard way at home with what is going on with my own family, but putting the right things into your system. So I believe 100% of trying to get rid of any exposure to pesticide. No one needs to have pesticides on beautiful fruit and vegetables going into their bodies. Okay. I'd rather you not eat beautiful looking fruits and you have the fresh ones that are going to rot or off a tree or something that's going to go bad in two days without the preservatives and the pesticides, because you just don't know that. Other simple things that everyone uses daily, your deodorant. When I look back at the deodorants that I used over the years, like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed to even say it. Like some of them are horrible horrible. Yeah, like the sprays um, that are like the whole room smells <laughs> like I, Axe or yeah, that, uh, just a I lot of these of. that have aluminum in them. And the sad thing is that the cleaner organic ones do not work as well, but you know what? I'm willing to smell a little bit and have a better health in my life than to be like perfectly anti-perspirated so I can get chemicals and, you know, aluminum into my body. So these are the little things that everyone can do. You know, I recently went to a lecture from someone that owns the or founded the company. I think it's called Beauty Counter. They have like a to-do, like a little card that has every chemical you should not use. Now, it's going to be impossible to be able to live with following that. But those are small things that you can do that tries to get Mm -hmm. rid of chemicals in your body. But just trying, the best advice someone ever gave me was that if it has an expiration date, I don't think it should be in your home and you shouldn't be eating it. So try not to buy things that are packaged with expiration dates, you know, buy more fresh, buy more limited quantities and fresher things and put better things in your body and on your body. Love it. Greg Renfew, is that who the founder? Yes. Yes. She listens to the podcast, though. We give her a shout out. Oh, yeah. You know what? Greg was wonderful. I'm part of the Young Presidents Organization, and she gave a lecture to our chapter, and I absolutely was in just amazed by her conversation and what she brought to the table. And it is so valuable. And I think that more and more people should be listening to everything she says. Yeah. 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 The the beauty counter is doing some amazing things. And I would also point people to the environmental working group, ewg.org. You can look at the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. So if you can't afford entirely organic or you don't have access to it within, if you're in a small town, then just shop the Dirty Dozen, try to get organic. The Clean 15, You, if you can't get organic, choose from the Clean 15 list. That's the lower pesticides, lower herbicides, and then wash it really well. I think that's, and you're absolutely right too. Like I live in Western Pennsylvania, like I, it, I, in the country, not far from West Virginia. It is not like a complete, like it's not, it's not Beverly Hills. <laughs> it is not Abbott Kinney. <laughs> and I can find organic things at Costco, at Aldi, at Walmart, at Target. So It's possible, people. You just have to know where to shop. Yeah, and listen, it's sad. It's more expensive. It's more expensive. But I think that everyone should look to see where they can, and inflation is out of control, but everyone should see that their health is their number one priority and where they can cut and shift to the areas that are most important for them, for longevity, for a life that's going to be filled with health and happiness in the long run. It's more important than some materialistic good that right now we don't need. Mm-hmm, certainly. So something that you mentioned, PCOS and, and knowing a lot about PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's on that insulin resistance spectrum. I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on fasting, intermittent fasting specifically, and its role, like should people that are trying to conceive the work under fertility, should they be fasting more? Should they be fasting less? That's a nuance. Let's talk about all the nuance and context of fasting's role 
in fertility and our hormones? So, you know what, this is an area that I wish I was more knowledgeable in. I, again, went to a lecture that was given by the founder of Next Health, and they are really good. And he was really, really promoting intermittent fasting. And everyone who seems to be doing it really believes in it. I personally, I can't miss a meal for the life of me. I can't miss (laughs) breakfast. If I miss a breakfast, a lunch, or a dinner, I'm just, this body does not do well. And I have to say, I think you need to be in touch with your body. If you are trying to wake up your insulin and get your body a change to try to lose some weight and try to change how you are doing, I think it's wonderful and nothing harmful is going to happen of it. I think you have to really understand where you are though with your own body and what your own limitations are. When I've noticed myself and other people have agreed with me, when you get your body to eating a lot, your body gets really used to eating a lot. When you get your body eating cleaner, you know, those first two weeks of having like less sugar and less carbs and less foods that are inflammatory, you feel like you're not full. You feel really, really weak and out of it. But after like coming out of the second week, you're like, wait a minute, I think I'm starting to feel better without even realizing I'm feeling better. So that transition is a little difficult. So intermittent fasting, if you've done your research, if you've tried it, if you're feeling good, if it is helping you achieve your goals of what you're trying to do, I'm all for it. Unfortunately, I don't know enough of the science behind how the insulin levels are affected and how it works to give you better scientific data on it. Mm -hmm. But I'm much more of a believer of you try what's right for you as a human Mm -hmm. being. And if it's working well, then Mm -hmm. go for it. Yeah, I agree with you fully. And and on that insulin resistance spectrum, what I've seen clinically is people that have more insulin resistance, more inflammation, more metabolic derangement, if you will, that more intermittent fasting is a great way to gain insulin sensitivity, to lower inflammation, sort of modulate the gut-brain axis in a positive way to help hormones. But people on the other side of the insulin resistance spectrum, they don't have a lot of insulin resistance, they don't have a lot of inflammation, and they're doing a lot of intermittent fasting. When it's throwing off their period, throwing off their cycle, and putting their body in that sort of fasted, it's basically too much in a hormetic stressed state, that can really, in my opinion, negatively impact fertility where they're just doing too much of a good thing. They need to lighten up. So bio-individuality when it comes to fasting and fertility is very important. I just wanted to, to highlight that from my perspective. What are the top, are, are there top supplements that someone should consider if they want to support fertility? Are there any like ones that you recommend there are, as a there go-to? Are. There, it's limited because when I ask patients, I, mean, I get sometimes lists of like 20 things that people are taking, and I don't think anybody <laughs> needs to take 20 supplements a day. <laughs> but there is one thing in particular that I try to promote to everyone. There is an antioxidant, which means it's a chemical, a vitamin or supplement, whatever you want to call it, that slows down the oxidative damage to all the cells of our body. So we age by oxidative damage. All of our cells get destructed and we get older by oxidative damage to all the cells of our body. And antioxidant slows down that process. CoQ10, CoQ10, or coenzyme Q10 has been proven to be one of the strongest antioxidants available in the world. In the world of fertility, the purest form of CoQ10 is called ubiquinol, and it's been studied to see how it affects fertility. Women that have taken 600 milligrams of CoQ10 a day have been shown in research to slow down the aging of their eggs. So they have better egg quality and their eggs are not being destructed at the same rate. Men have been shown with 200 milligrams to have better quality sperm. We've looked at a lot of different brands. The pharmacy that I work with the most has a brand called Naturally Smart for Women CoQ10. It's 200 milligrams of ubiquinol. It's sometimes really hard to find them in 200 milligram tablets and people are taking like six 100s, which is a lot of pills for me. So the MDRX Fertility Pharmacy has done an excellent job trying to get the 200 milligram tablets and they have a very, very good formula and form of the ubiquinol. So women... 600 milligrams of ubiquinol CoQ10 a day, men 200. Now, I also think that a very pure, clean prenatal vitamin is an excellent supplement 
for a reproductive aged woman. Whether you're trying to have a baby or not, I think a prenatal vitamin is a very well-balanced vitamin for a female in the reproductive years. And I also recommend the Naturally Smart Prenatal Vitamin, which is also carried by the MDRX. They looked at hundreds of different brands. I like the Naturally Smart very much. I also like Pure Encapsulations. I think they're a very clean brand. Sadly, and after doing a lot of research in the industry of vitamins and supplements, you kind of get what you pay for. So if you're paying $4.99 a bottle, I would double check to see what you're getting and make sure that it is something that your body even needs. Unfortunately, some of the better supplements are more expensive. Not all the expensive ones are just that good. So be careful. There's an omega-3 DHA that I also like made by Naturally Smart. It's one pill a day. Those are pretty much the three that I think are smart. If you are working with a fertility specialist and you have been diagnosed with low egg reserve or a diminished ovarian reserve, DHEA has also been able to be helpful, 75 milligrams a day. So usually it comes in 25s and you take three a day, but that is only recommended for a limited amount of time until you make the eggs that you're able to be conceived with. And then you stop. It does have long-term effects that are negative for especially women. I love that. That's very practical. So a ubiquinol, CoQ10, prenatal, omega, those are the top three. Yeah. And the reason I like the naturally smart brand of the omega-3 is that it comes from plants, not from fish. So it is mercury-free. You can take it for years without having mercury buildup in your body. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, many of the fish oils out there that people love to take have mercury in them. And the last thing we need after eating all of that sushi these days is to put another source of mercury in our body. But there yeah. are some other supplements that I think are also worthwhile too. Like I, I think, for example, turmeric, I think is excellent. The anti-inflammatory effects, like you can literally see inflammation going down in your hands and in your body and mm-hmm. feeling better having a pure turmeric. And I think, you know, these things better than I do, but, you know, having it supplemented with, I think like the pepper that's supposed to go with it to get better absorption. I love a natural, there's a natural supplement that I love just for overall well-being called ashwagandha. It's like a natural antidepressant, which is healthy and perfectly fine. And in a good way, very, I've taken it and I think it's wonderful. I'm very curious if there's anything for the overall female body that you've found to be very helpful. Well, I it's, as you were talking, I was going to ask you, my next question was, what are your thoughts on adaptogens? And ashwagandha is one of the most well-researched adaptogens to help support it is an anti-inflammatory, but it supports the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, female hormones, thyroid support, this research around that. So I, the, I think that the the core ones that you recommended are really very helpful for supporting someone's fertility and giving them the cofactors and nutrients that they, they need. I think adaptogens right. like ashwagandha, not just ashwagandha, but I love holy basil or tulsi. Shashandra, I think that Shilajit, these are other adaptogens that have been used for a long time that do have some compelling evidence in the research to be supportive of what were the mechanisms of what we're trying to support here when it comes to fertility. And then some common nutrient deficiencies that I'm sure you see too is things like vitamin D deficiency. Oh yeah, all the time. And I'm so sorry I forgot that. But yeah. it's basically, it's on our list of every single person. Yeah. I check like off everybody. vitamin D for everyone. I tell everyone that vitamin D 2000 international units or IUs is basically where everyone should be taking every day, whether you're a deficient or not. So be careful if you're taking 5,000 or 10,000 a day. We are seeing some people because the topic is hot that are yeah. getting vitamin D toxicity into levels that are not really healthy as well. So right. overdoing it can be overdoing anything is not a great Certainly. idea. So I think 2000 international units a day is a great way to be. Love that. And I agree with you. I think once you go to 5,000 I use, which is where I typically take people to get there to the optimal zone faster, but it's always with the caveat, make sure you're testing because you don't yes. want to keep doing this yep. if you don't need to be. And I think 2000 is exact. If you're not going to test 2000 is a safer place to be for sure. You mentioned a lab earlier at the top of the conversation that people should be checking in and looking what their numbers are. What are, are there any other labs that you think people yes. should be checking in with their fertility health? So any female out there who's listening, an anti-malarian hormone, the AMH can be done at any time of your life, whether you're on birth control pills or off, whether you're on your period or not. 
You could do it whatever day you go to see your OBGYN and say, hey, can I just check my AMH? I'm really curious to see where it is. Many OBGYNs, sadly, don't understand how to read the number. In the beginning when it came out, as long as they used to say the AMH is above one, you're good, and below one, you're not, it's not true, okay? If you are 30 years old and you're a 1.1, you're not doing well. The AMH is definitely low, and you should be concerned, and that is not where you should be. Someone who's in their early 30s, a good AMH in my eyes is like two and a half to five. Once you start to go above the five or six level, it's kind of hinting that you may have polycystic ovary syndrome. So something to think about. If you're 43 years old and your AMH is 0.9, you're doing darn well for your age. Again, it's below one in the old days. Everyone used to say it's bad, but I think you should celebrate if you're 43 years old and it's 0.9. So it's a level that I think needs to really be assessed with fertility specialists because not all OBs know how to do it. But I also want to let everyone know that this number they used to say doesn't get affected at all from continuous birth control or long-term use of birth control. But we are seeing more and more that people have been on birth control for 15, 20 years continuously. Their AMH can be suppressed. So we tell people to come off of it for a month to three months before checking. Now, if you're 40, 41 years of age, wasting three months to see what the real accurate blood test is really detrimental. So you got to kind of weigh the benefits of waiting, not waiting, but these are the uh, an important, the most important blood tests. The other blood tests that are important happen usually on your period on day two or three of your cycle, maybe even day four is totally fine, but is the FSH hormone, the LH hormone, the estradiol hormone, which is a form of estrogen, your thyroid TSH at any time of the month should always be accurate and looking good. For people that are trying to conceive, we like to do a TSH and have it between two to 2.5. It is very, we are quick to put people on a thyroid medication to bring it because the side effects are so low and yeah. thyroid is so important fertility. A prolactin level in the normal range, which is less than 20 is also important and could be done at any time and an ultrasound that looks at the ovaries. In the beginning of the cycle, when you're on your period, looking at the ovary to count what's called the antral follicle count, or those little bubbles that's on your ovary, gives you so much feedback on how healthy your ovary looks. Not a bad idea to get an ultrasound done in the beginning of the month. Great, great tips. And you, you highlighted something that I see clinically, and I'm very curious to pick your brain about it, it is this, well, it's, it's you called by different terms, but I've heard it being phrased as post-birth control syndrome, basically on birth control, oral birth control, oral contraceptives for years and years and years. They come off of it. They want to ha try having babies now and their cycle doesn't come back normally. Is this something that you see a lot of? What are your thoughts on that? So up to six months of getting, after you come off birth control, we consider it normal if your period doesn't come back for six months and then eventually does. If you are off birth control and you have not had a period for six months or longer, you, there's something going wrong that it has nothing to do with the birth control. Maybe your period had already gone away. Maybe your cycles were so irregular that they're not back at all. But I personally am a proponent of not waiting six months for anything. You know, if you're 39 years old and you've been taking birth control for 10 years and now you're coming off of it, I don't think you should be waiting six months. Six months in a 39-year-old, you should talk to a fertility specialist. Maybe you're, it's just kind of suppressed your body, but I think it's important at the time to kind of be proactive. You got to think about where you are in your age. If you're 29, you've got six months to wait. If you're 39, you shouldn't be waiting six months. So I think it's important, but yes, Birth control pills for many people suppress their ovaries so much that it takes a while to get them back. But again, you have to take into consideration at what age you're coming off because some people, their fertility is low at 39 when they came off of 15 years of birth control. True. So I would think ahead. I would think ahead. And mm -hmm. if you're trying to be proactive about your fertility and you want to start trying in you know six months from now, come off earlier. Give yourself a little bit more time, check and see where you are, monitor your cycles and all of those things together to give yourself better educated on where you are. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Great points. Something that comes to mind for some of these people, in addition to the age component of it is like their hormones, of course, could look different than 
when they went on it in the first place. But I think of back to that earlier statement of, of these other environmental toxins that are going on, the other inflammatory metabolic issues that are going on is that people that are coming off of these old contraceptives, sometimes they are not methylating and detoxing appropriately. So like, you're right, six months normal. I, I see some of these people that are on it for, they are off of it for a lot longer than six months and their bodies just isn't clearing a lot of stuff out. It's it's pretty profound, which goes back to the larger conversation, environmental load that I think toxic load that we're under as a world. I also think, well, that many people don't know how to clear things out of their system. Mm -hmm. They don't know that there are foods and there are things to do to clean your liver out that kind of clear some of these things out faster. And I think those are really important to know. I just think like, you know, giving yourself time, but still inflaming your body with all the things that are bad for you is not going to allow for the clearance of a lot of these things that are not good for you. Yeah. Do you have any specific ones that you like to recommend just that support liver detox? You know, I just like just natural things. Beets are a food that I think are really underestimated in this country. We give, we, some of the procedures we do really constipate people the beet juice not only gets people regular, but it is a food and a vegetable that has been shown to really have benefit effect on the liver and cleansing the body. But so do a lot of other vegetables that I'm not yeah. so savvy on, but I know that one for sure is one yeah. that is excellent for you. I'm actually curious, is there, are there certain yeah. ones that you think are great? Yeah, I mean, I think avoiding a lot of junk food, first of all, would just give your body the chance to do it. Preservatives, anything yeah. with preservatives, out. Yeah. And I think absolutely beets, dark leafy greens, bitter greens can be really wonderful. Different herbs like gentian and milk thistle can be very helpful for supporting liver function. But honestly, if you go off of a lot of the junk foods, your body has a natural capacity to do it. And then go above and beyond eating nutrient dense foods, increasing nutrient density across the board will help liver function. Great and point. Honestly, water. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> Hydration. There, yeah. there are so many people that I noticed that are not even drinking two glasses of water a day. And the thing is that studies have shown that people that do not keep their body well hydrated do not get thirsty because the inflow and outflow of fluid into our cells is what gives us thirst and makes mm -hmm. us thirsty. And if you're not having a fluid going in and out of your cells, that just fluid is just sitting there. And in my opinion, it's just not healthy to just have that stagnant kind of fluid mm -hmm. that is sitting in your cells and not being changed and moving along as mm -hmm. you're kind of moving along with your day-to-day -day activities. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, other side of detox on that conversation of hydration and these herbs we're talking about is bowel movements. Like that's another major detox pathway, people. So if you're major. not going to the bathroom... One to two snakes a day is what we say in the clinic. <laughs> you are going to be recirculating a lot of junk that your, bo you, your body wants to be clearing out of you. If you are not having normal movements on a regular basis, there is something that you are doing that is completely wrong for your diet and your activity level. Yeah, well said. All right, Dr. Kadir, you know the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. At the end of every episode, this is your art of being well. This is Dr. Gadir's art of being well. I'm going to pick your brain on different things personally. Like what are your personal favorites within wellness? Are you up for this? Challenge? Yes, I love this actually. Right. I have something topic at the top of my head that we didn't even touch on that's so important. Wait, let's start there. What is it? Stress. Oh, so let's go All there. of this is amazing. All of this is amazing. But if you don't take control of your mind in the process of fertility, you're not going to be successful. So learning or putting into place some kind of meditation. And I, I learned that meditation does mean you're sitting there with your legs crossed and your fingers pinched and staring at the moon. It's That's not meditation. I have learned over time by doing this, and I'm not that good at it myself, but even washing dishes where you zone out and go into another world and stop thinking about all the stresses of your life is considered meditation. So you have to give your mind an opportunity every day of trying to kind of take things out. Now, do I think washing dishes is the best kind of meditation? Absolutely not. But I think it's beyond, beyond important to give yourself an opportunity, whether it's a walk 
just leaving your home for 10, 15, 20 minutes and just leaving your phone behind or doing something that clears your mind and gets you reset, I think is so important. Yeah, very good point. Thank you for bringing it up. You're absolutely right. It's these non-food inflamers. What are things that are shifting the body into a sympathetic fight or flight stress state, which is the antithesis of someone that wants to conceive and have healthy hormones, even if they don't want to conceive? <laughs> it's looking at foods that shift the body into that inflammatory state. And stress is a massive inflamer as well. So I'm curious, speaking of foods, is what is there a healthy food that is like the worst tasting healthy food that you still eat because it's so good for you? Yes. I don't know why, but <laughs> when I go to the Whole Foods market, there's a grass, the wheat grass that they cut and they juice. Yes. And I just know that that has to be good for me. And I don't know why. <laughs> it is the worst tasting thing ever. They do it as a shot. And when I go in, I usually have one of those shots just because I know it's going to be good for me. And quickly afterwards, they know it's so bad. They give you a slice of an orange to take the taste down. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, you talk about liver support and gut support. That's yes. some some dark leafy green wheatgrass shot like that. Uh, definitely up there. Great. Do you think, I'm curious on, on your, your thoughts on this. Do you think we as a society are better or worse off with social media? Worse. So I really go out of my way to make sure that my social channels are promoting life and helping people. But when a young individual is just looking at this snapshot into someone else's life that doesn't really look like them, you have absolutely no idea of all of their problems and you don't really understand anything else, but you're seeing a snapshot in Mykonos, a snapshot on the airplane, a snapshot on the beach here, a snapshot of that. It is not life. It is so not life. And trying to make a little screen with three pictures across of your entire life that people are going to admire is really easy. I know personally people that I have met in person that were patients of mine that had big followings that when I saw, I didn't even recognize because their picture and the reality of who they were were so mm. different. The problems that they have were just like anyone else in this world. And on their Instagram, you would never feel it. And I think when this goes out there into our societal norms, that people live these perfect, perfect lives. I put things on Instagram when I'm on a vacation or something, when I was having the peak of my day for one minute and I snapped a little video for 10 seconds, but like an hour later, my kid was screaming and crying and someone was vomiting and something was going wrong. And obviously no one puts that on. So I think it has, I think it's good for education if used in the correct way, but I think it's some way detrimental because it doesn't really bring reality out there and it brings what you want to bring to the screen for a second or a snapshot. Yep. Very well said. I think it, like, obviously we're connecting to people around the world right now. It has amazing benefits, but it's just so much. I think it's people have an unhealthy regulation or balance, I think, with technology. We all do. And, and just being on it too much, literally yeah. just being on it too much. You know, I, I have a 13 year old and I see how often she likes to be on her phone. You know, <laughs> we were at a family dinner the other night and I had to tell her five times to please put her phone down. It's not like she's getting emergency calls as a physician <laughs> she's not in the middle call. of dinner. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> just checking to see where your friends are and checking yeah. your TikTok is not that important. <laughs> I know. I, I was 16 and a 13 year old and I'm right there with you. It's like. We were late to bring phones into their life and we waited as long as we could. And um, now I still see it. Like we, we have to center them and it, it, they're set up for like the world is, the, the odds are stacked against them as far as the world kind of, it's enticing them to be immersed in this virtual world. It's sad. You got to be very careful. And as a parent, I got I always say this, parenting is the hardest job in the world and instilling all the right values and everything, but all of the social media and electronics and everything that's out there is just in my vision, so negative and it harms you in so much because 
there's it's not limited it's continuous mm-hmm. yeah it's true what's the weirdest wellness thing that you've done if you I, that you're willing to admit on a podcast and maybe you haven't done any weird things but i'm curious i had shoulder surgery last year okay and with all the pain medications and everything i've don't think i've ever said this but i had to i could not go to the restroom so i had to go get a colonic that was probably one of the weirdest things ever <laughs> that i did and what, what you know what's so funny is real fast and i'll let you get back to it is when i asked that question number one people guests say colonics oh really okay yeah. so I, I you're not alone you're not okay alone. it was probably one of the most uncomfortable weird things that i did but it was getting to the point of like almost like you know catastrophe like did not feel normal at all i could not function for like a minute anymore it was getting so bad i had to have my dad come and pick me up and drive me somewhere that I found just by calling around. And the woman could not have been nicer. Of course, it was a woman and it was just awkward as hell. But I <laughs> do not think <laughs> that it was, I don't really believe in them. And people ask me that all the time. Yeah. And after going through that process, I can tell you, I don't necessarily see a benefit of it. And I think yeah. naturally cleansing yourself is a yeah. much better way than doing that. I agree with you. I think they're probably really small percentage of people who could benefit from them randomly if they're impacted or what. I mean, there maybe there's some, but I, I don't recommend them either. I think it's something that it is, there are better ways to support detox pathways. Are we going to be hooked up to a colonic the rest of your life? It's like the, you It just to, teaches your system not to work yeah. on its own. And I don't see yeah. any benefit. And I don't think any... I don't think your GI tract needs to be washed with fluid. Right. And then I think of the loss of bacterial diversity in the microbiome, That's especially over if you're getting it done repeatedly. I mean, yeah. I mean, that is so negative. And that natural microbiome that you have there and that layer of gut that's kind of like this, uh, the bacteria that's natural there being removed, I think it can be harmful. Yeah, I agree with that. What's your favorite way to increase your energy levels? If you're having like a little lull in energy, what's your favorite pick-me-up? Gosh, that's a really good one. And this is, so I have never been a runner in my life. During the pandemic, when I had nothing else to do and I couldn't really exercise, I, I started to run and I was doing it for like three minutes and I was out of breath. When I got myself to be able to run over 30 minutes continuously, I got to tell you, it is a phenomenal way to start your day. And the energy boost and the endorphins is truly like a drug. Sadly, I did it so much that I kind of like hurt my back. And at my age, my really good friend who's my doctor is like, I don't know if running is the best. So doing it in the right shoes and the right environment on the right ground and limiting it, I think can be very good boost of energy. Yeah, yeah I hear you. Running is hard on the body. You're right. It's very. Like- Move I didn't realize how sure. hard it was. Yeah. Maybe like hiking, a brisk walk, some swimming. I changed to go to a brisk walk. And I, th- I told myself, God, it's going to be some waste of time yeah. walking. I always see these people walking when I'm jogging. I'm like, why are they doing that? Weekly. And it's such a waste of time. And <laughs> yeah, I, right. I think I was wrong because I started to right. do some brisk walks. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not out of breath as much, but I still got a broken sweat and I still mm-hmm. felt great. And I still was out looking around and enjoying and getting my mind off. And I yeah. think it is as good if done the right way. Absolutely. With consistency, I agree. It's underrated. I'm the same way. My mind, my like sort of alpha, like obsessive mind is like, no, more is better. But no, that's not true. No, no, uh, no. The back pain that came from doing running a lot was awful. And yeah. Not so many it. people, I have so many people told me, be careful soon. Your back or your knees are going to be hurting. And I'm like, Oh, what are you talking about? To just learn how to run. You know, just <laughs> great. I'm glad it took me 50 years, but I just got there. <laughs> That's amazing. I could talk to you forever. My friend, great conversation. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about your work, your clinic, all the things. So my clinic is Southern California Reproductive Center in the heart of Beverly Hills. We have offices in Pasadena. We have offices in Santa Barbara, California, but we do consultations with people around the entire world. And that's the huge benefit of what we learned from the pandemic. 99.9% of my consultations are now virtual and they're going incredibly well. And we help people and whether you're coming to the clinic or just need advice, we're happy to do it by phone um, and by telemedicine. 
the Dr. Shaheen Gadir channels, which is Dr. Shaheen Gadir on Instagram and on Facebook are great. My podcast is called The Fertile Life, and we have amazing guests such as the Dr. Will Cole on our podcast as well, and other fantastic people talking about many different aspects of fertility and also about life. So it's not only about fertility, it's a, a lot of stuff, fun stuff that we have there. Those are basically the best ways to see and follow along and learn about fertility in this day and age. Thank you, my friend. Come back anytime. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.